If you've spent much time around tiny humans, if you've had tiny humans or there are tiny humans related to you, uh, you inevitably come to that, that moment in their development when they fall into what I call an infinite causality loop. That's like it's what most people call it. it. It's where they're always asking why. Why? 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 And kind of like worse than that though, right? I mean, why? Why? And if you've ever been the parent or the grandparent or the Sunday school teacher or whatever in you know, caught in an infinitive, excuse me, in an infinity loop of causality, uh, it can be somewhat irritating. Can I get an amen? I mean, you know, it's like they're just pestering. Why? And so, and this is the thing. It doesn't take long in an infinite causality loop to run out of answers. Even for educated adults, if, if I don't, you know, if I can just risk by saying that. Uh, so eventually you get to the point where you don't know why. <laughs> can I, dad, why, why? And you're like, I don't know. And then when you get to that point of I don't know, you never say you don't know because that would be to admit weakness, which is a classic flaw in parenting. Never admit weakness. So what do you do? We resort to that ultimate answer because that's how God made it, right? Which actually ends the infinity loop for us. So we feel like, ah, infinite causality loop, solved it. But for the three-year-old, not so much. And so, you know, the questions keep coming, why, why, why? Asking those why questions, those, those causality questions, that's an important part of human development for sure. But it's also an important part of our spiritual development. We need to ask the question why, especially this morning as we consider what is basically one of the most fundamental and elementary seeming aspects of the Christian life. We all know, and you're gathered here this morning, so I, I'm taking that risk that you would agree that we should worship God. That we should worship God. Meaning we should value God. He should be at the center of our lives. We should sing about His goodness, right? We should worship God. But why should we worship God? It's an important question to ask. Because it's not enough just to say, well, because, or because I said so, or because he said so, we need to know why we should worship God. In many ways, the book of Psalms helps us answer that question because, of course, there are infinite answers to why we should worship God because of the beauty of his character. And yet, in, in the book of Psalms, we find different expressions of particular reasons why we should worship God. And those reasons are given to bless us and to help us worship God. Psalm 33 works just like that. It is a psalm of praise. It not only calls us to praise God and worship God, but it gives us some reasons why we should worship God. Now, before we get into the details, I think it's important to acknowledge that worship, uh, although it's something we participate in corporately, it is an individual decision that we have to make. We have to choose to value God. We have to decide, I am going to pursue God. I am going to put him at the center of my life, of my thinking. And I am indeed going to respond to him with worship because he's worth it. Because that's an individual decision, you need to ask the question this morning as we get into the, the psalm, am I a worshiper? Am I worshiping God in my daily life? Do I value him above all else? And of course, if we answer that in the negative, I'm not worshiping God at the moment, we want to press into our, our hearts and ask the question, well, what is it then that I'm valuing that's more important than this God who's revealed to be glorious and worthy of worship, even in Psalm 33? 
So let's take a look here at the psalm. We'll see how it unpacks. It's going to help us answer these questions, and it'll help us grow as worshipers. Watch uh, verse 1 in Psalm 33. There's no title for this psalm, kind of unique. Actually, in the, in the first book of psalms, it's very rare for a psalm not to have a title, but we assume that it's authored by David because of the context in which we find it. Either way, the psalmist says in verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. You, you can use your imagination and picture this psalm being read perhaps at the beginning of a corporate gathering of worship, maybe on the temple, where there's this opportunity for the gathered saints to come and to praise God. Five imperatives in verses 1 through 3, all calling both the worship leaders, those who are instrumentalists, as well as the saints themselves to do what? To praise God or to rejoice in the Lord. So verse 1, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. The end of verse 1 might also be uh, an imperative or a call to respond, praise to the Lord. Verse 2, though, praise to the Lord, right? Praise the Lord with the lyre. Uh, Make music to him with a ten-string harp. Those two instruments weren't certainly the only instruments used in worship. They're simply representative samples from the worship team, right, from, from the music team. So the idea is, okay, we've got the 10-string uh, harp. We've got the lyre. It's kind of like an old-school guitar. Like, praise God, right? Just play it. Play it skillfully, verse 3. So sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. Again, five imperatives calling us to do what? To worship. The fundamental idea isn't difficult to understand, We're called here, we're commanded here to praise God. But not just to praise God, to praise God with joy. Note the positive inclination here in these calls to worship. Again, rejoice in the Lord, verse 1. Praise from the upright is beautiful. It's like fitting. It's it's something to be, uh, you know, acknowledged as right and good. And then in verse 3, as we sing a new song to him, play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. You can envision, again, the people gathered for this corporate moment of worship, and this is kind of like the pep talk before. It's like, let's praise the Lord. Let's play skillfully. Let's use these instruments. Let's use our voices. Let's sing a new song, and let's praise God. Why a new song? A new song because God's redemptive work continues. He's not done working. He is still active in the universe, and because of that, he is worthy of praise and acknowledgement for the ways that he has been working that are new and therefore worthy of a new song. Again, the calling is simple here in verses 1 through 3. Praise God. Singing joyfully is the default tone of Christian worship. Singing joyfully is the default tone of Christian worship. It is right and good for believers, the righteous, those who have responded to the gospel by faith, it is right and good for believers to lift their voices, to play their instruments, to do so joyfully, and to shout joyfully to the Lord. It is right and good for believers to sing new and old songs of worship to the Lord. Again, recognizing that God is still actively at work. And if you need New Testament confirmation that this is what God calls us to, you can look to Colossians chapter 3, 
where we find that we are called to edify, encourage, instruct each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Those three terms there in Colossians 3 referencing a variety of songs of worship, those that both come from the book of Psalms proper and other songs that have been written to praise the Lord. Praise God. Do you realize that God created you to praise Him? That He created us to rejoice in His glory and to articulate that verbally in singing or musically with an instrument. And here we find out it is beautiful and right and good for us to praise God. Again, it is kind of a, a, a pep rally, like this call to recognize that praising God is something that not only are we called to do, but we're called to do so with joy. We'll see in a moment that the joy that comes to us in praising God is a function of His character. But I think it's important to note, even at the outset of this psalm, which is very positive, okay? This is a very positive, joy-focused psalm, right? Talking about praising God, that this is not pretend joy. We're not called to uh, put a plastic smile on our face and just ignore the hardship that's going on in our lives. Again, this call to worship doesn't minimize that hardship, but it does remind us that we are in a comedy, not a tragedy, if you remember from literary theory, a tragedy is a story that has a sad ending. The, the, the story arc, it's like things happen, and then, oh, we have a sad ending, and it kind of ends on a downer tragedy. Comedy is the other. It's a U-shape, where we have the story starts, oh, we get into trouble, but then there's rescue and redemption and deliverance, and so then we end on, an, on a high note. That's the technical term for comedy, right, in literary criticism. We're not in a tragedy. Our story doesn't end, wah, 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 like with that. That, you know, some of you, that's your soundtrack every day. You're like, I live by that sound. That's like your ringtone. It, listen, if you're a Christian, that, get, get a new ringtone. Okay, that can't be a ringtone. Because we're not in a tragedy. We are living in a comedy in the sense that God is at work in the world. And so when the psalmist says rejoice in the Lord, he's not saying life is easy and everything's always good. He's saying in the middle of whatever's going on, when we look at the character of our great God, we find cause to lift our voices and shout with joy, to sing. Again, it's the default setting in the Christian life, that tone of joyful worship. Now, the meat of this psalm explains to us why we should do so. Watch verse 4. We're called to praise God. Four. Because, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. And we're going to pause right there. That really introduces this new section where the psalmist is going to articulate about the, the, the word of the Lord, the, articulate a reason why we should worship God. He says, the word of the Lord is right. What the, what the Lord says, and of course does, is right. That's picked up in the second half of the verse. And all his work is trustworthy. His work is reliable. His work shows his glory. So the psalmist says, listen, we're going to praise God together. We're going to lift our voices and play these instruments. We're going to praise God. Why? Because the word of the Lord is right, and his work is reliable and trustworthy. He goes on to develop this idea of focusing on God's character in his actions. He says in verse 5, He, that is the Lord, loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. This is, again, an, a moment where we're called to consider who God is and why we should respond to him in worship. And the psalmist here says 
that God loves righteousness and justice, which I think is an implicit acknowledgement that not everything is righteous or just, that we see failures in righteousness and justice in our lives and in the world. But nonetheless, God loves righteousness and justice. And if you're looking, you will see that the earth is full of his unfailing love. If you have other translations, they might say his loving kindness. This is a really uh, important word in the Old Testament that talks about God's gracious commitment to keep his covenant promises no matter what. It's a beautiful word. His gracious commitment to keep his covenant promises no matter what. And here in Psalm 33, we learn that the earth is full of that. It's full of evidence that God is fundamentally good and he graciously fulfills his covenant promises. And so when we look around, we see evidences of his grace. It doesn't mean that's the only thing we see, but it does, see that for the, it does mean that for the believer, as we look, we see the world through the lens of God's goodness, that it's there all the time. Now, in articulating reasons to worship, we talk about the word of the Lord. The psalmist says, let's just talk about what the word of the Lord actually does. Watch verse 6. He says, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. Again, if you pause there, the word of the Lord is right. It's good. It gets things done. Well, what does it get done? Well, it got done everything. Like all the things. All of creation, right? The word of the Lord did that. The the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. The Lord said, let there be, and it was. And so here the psalmist says, we praise God because when God speaks, it happens. Again, verse 6, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. You know, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, they looked at the stars and and they saw, uh, uh, you know, something to worship, not signs that there was a creator, Right? And so there was confusion about what, what is worthy of worship. So they would worship the stars. They saw in the stars, I could read my fortune in the stars. Of course, that still is practiced today. Astrology, the idea of, you know, discerning what's going to happen to you based on what month you were born in and what, what you know, position the planets are in. But here in the psalm, Psalm 33, the, the psalmist says, no, listen, we're going to rejoice in the Lord because it was by his word that those stars came into existence. The stars are evidence pointing to God as creator. In ancient and Eastern worship, there was also a struggle with basically this idea of chaos. And essentially, in the Canaanite myths, uh, you know, the, the Canaanite gods and goddesses were in a never-ending struggle with the forces of chaos. And it was just kind of this, always the seesaw battle. But watch verse 7. This is countering false Canaanite theology here. But the psalmist says, He that is the Lord, he gathers the waters of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Now, just... Let's pause and consider this picture for a moment, okay? He gathers the waters into a heap. I don't know when the last time was you were swimming. Hopefully it was recently in the summer, right? But um, have you ever tried to gather water into a heap? It's difficult. (laughs) Nary impossible to do that, okay? So it's hard. What's the picture? Well, the picture in ancient Eastern theology, Canaanite theology, well, the, the waters, the oceans, the seas, they were forces of chaos, in fact, uh, the, the Canaanite god Yom was the god of the sea. and He was mischievous. He was a chaos worker. He was always kind of the bad guy. So you have this chaos. But what does God do with chaos? He stacks it neatly. And 
Notice verse 7. He gathers the waters into, of the sea into a heap, and he puts the depths, the depths of the waters, into storehouses in labeled boxes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm reading between the lines there. I'll give you that one. It's not in the Hebrew. But this is the picture, right? It's the contrast between chaos and order. And again, why worship God? In Canaanite theology, it was, you, you worship the gods because they could mess up your life because they were kind of crazy and there was always a conflict and you never knew. You wanted chaos to, to be, you know, overcome and all that. So you just kind of hoped and you did the sacrifices and maybe things would work out and all of that. But you, you never really knew. It was filled with fear and uncertainty or whatever. And in Psalm 33, the psalmist says, we worship God because he said, let it be. And it was. We worship God because not only did he call everything into existence, but those seas and oceans that everybody's so scared of, God has organized in a storehouse. And when it rains, God knows. And when it floods, God knows. He is not subject to the forces of chaos. He here is sovereign over those forces. Again, it's a picture of God's power as the creator. It's echoed from Exodus chapter 15, where in the, in the moment of redemption, where God rescues his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, he does so through water. And there's evidence there of God's sovereignty over the forces of so-called chaos, again, in Canaanite and Egyptian thinking. So here, it's the same idea, that God is worthy of worship because he's, he's sovereign over it all. Therefore, verse 8, keep going, let the whole earth fear Yahweh in your Bible. It's all caps there, the word Lord. The distinct God of Israel. Let the whole earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Because he's not like Yom or Baal or Asherah, these Canaanite gods or goddesses who are always struggling and tussling and, and all of that. And they're a little mischievous and wicked sometimes. Let the earth, let all the inhabitants of the earth worship the God of Israel. The God revealed in Psalm 33. Let all, the, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Because he said, let there be, and there was. He's not afraid of the water. Verse 9, the end of this section. Why should the world stand in awe? For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. Listen. Praise God, but praise God for his power as creator. Praise God for his power as creator. We don't have to fear the chaos that is around us. And to be honest, I think we have to acknowledge that sometimes we feel a little overwhelmed by the chaos, that it is a little scary. But God said, let there be, and there was. And because of his power as creator, we can actually come to him and stand in awe, right? Have a, a healthy fear of God. That's not a fear of judgment. That's a fear that recognizes the power and majesty of the transcendent creator of the universe, right? Who speaks the universe into existence. And because he does that, he is worthy of our worship. It is right and good for us to bow before this God and to value him above all else. The world is filled with evidence of God's loving kindness. Again, the earth is filled with his evidences of his gracious commitment to keep his promises. But the question is, do you see it? If you're like me, when, um, when you're facing difficult circumstances, those circumstances cause you to kind of focus on the negative right in front of you, and that's all you see. You see the mess. 
You see the trial. You see the problems in the family. You see the financial challenges that are, that are coming. You see uh, the hurricane bearing down on Southern California. You, see, you just see it's, it's all that you can see. It's all that in, that's in your, your eyes. Uh, it's all that's in your field of vision. But for the believer, when we look at the world, even though we see hardship and challenges and difficulties, and we can be honest about those, the fact is we also see evidences of God's gracious commitment to keep his promises. We see his faithfulness. It's there. It's always been there. And so we push back against idolatry. I think this particular part of Psalm 33 is designed to combat the allure of Canaanite gods and goddesses, right, in the original context. Well, you and I, we're probably not tempted to worship the sea god Yom. If you are, see me after service, okay? We'll talk about that, right? That's not probably our, our, our struggle. But our struggle is still to worship the gods of our culture. And when chaos enters our lives, or with seeming chaos, when we feel like things are out of control, we start to think, oh, I'll go to this, and this will rescue me. This, meaning, what's going to give me control over the chaos? Money. Money will rescue me. I can't do it. Or relationships. My family will rescue me. Have you met your family? <laughs> no. They can't, they can't do that work. Right? And even good families, by God's grace, that are a blessing, they can't do that work. Right? And we think, oh, well, peer approval, if I just, if everybody would just kind of, kind of give me a pat on the back or a like online, well, then my problems are going to, no, they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. But rather than trust in something we have created or some part of God's creation to subdue the chaos, in Psalm 33, the calling is worship God because he spoke everything into existence. He actually has the power. And so we don't look to creation to be what only the creator is. Romans 1, the Apostle Paul just reminds us that is the challenge daily. It's the, the challenge is to worship creation instead of the creator. To worship what God has made, or maybe what we have made, instead of him. But man, we can't find significance or value, ultimately, outside of reference to our creator. It's really interesting in our culture, our culture has doubled down on this pursuit of finding significance, finding value outside of reference to the fact that we are created beings made in the image of God. And we are struggling as a culture. We keep, we're reaching in the dark for something that's not there. Trying, thinking, oh, we're going to find it. We're going to find it. It's right around the corner. And all the while, God's the one who said, let there be light. And he's the one who shines the light of the gospel in our hearts. And so there's this recognition that God has created us to be worshipers because where we find significance and value is in reference to him as the creator. He made us. There's maybe a caution here about trying to find your significance outside of reference to the Lord. We could maybe do it in career. We could do it with education. We could do it with family where we think this is what really anchors me as a person. But you know what's really crazy? What's crazy is God said, let there be you. And you were. Which means that he created you. That's where the psalm turns. It turns now from thinking about God's infinite power as the creator of the universe to think about God's interaction with that universe. Watch verse 10 and just note how this develops. The psalmist goes on, 
The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. Pause there at verse 12. So verses 10 to 12, the transition becomes, you know, okay, well, yeah, God created us. But sometimes the way we think is, well, you know, God created us, but really he's like a distant landlord, an absentee landlord, where he just created everything, but now he's like on vacations in some other universe and just, you know, letting everything play out. But note here, the psalmist says, no, no, we're, we're not going to allow ourselves that despair of viewing God as a distant and uninvolved creator. We praise God because of his power in creation, but that's not all. It's not only that he, he did the work of creation, he's involved in it. So in verse 10, the Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. This is echoing the sentiment we've, we saw in Psalm 2, where again, we have the nations kind of asserting their authority and their power, their military power, their financial power. And they're saying, this is what we're going to do. And we don't care what any deity says, certainly not the God of Israel. And we're going to do our thing. And Psalm 33, as, long as, as well as Psalm 2 says, yeah, no, that's not how it works. Nations are powerful. Don't get me wrong. But nations don't say, let there be, and there is. So the Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. No plan of the nations comes to pass without God allowing it. And then note the contrast in verse 11. Okay, so the, he frustrates the counsel of the nations and the plans of the peoples. But verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands how long? Does, what does your Bible say? Forever. Forever. God doesn't have a five-year plan. He has the infinity plan. Right? And his counsel stands forever. The plans of his heart are never thwarted. They endure from generation to generation is the idea. So we're, now we're not talking about simply God being powerful as creator. Now we're talking about God being engaged in creation with his plan. His plan as the sovereign. That's why verse 12, happy is the nation. Happy, blessed. Remember last week, the CSB translated it, uh, how joyful is. And I, would, I kind of regret the inconsistency there from psalm to psalm with the translation. Because I think here that's one of the reasons why these psalms were viewed as connected and why there's no title for Psalm 33. How, how blessed is or how joyful is the nation whose God is the Lord, whose God is Yahweh. Again, ancient Near Eastern peoples, they worshiped their nations, had their kind of, you know, pet gods, and they worshiped the God of the nation. Well, here there's a distinction. Yahweh's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all. But man, how, how joyful, how blessed are the people he has chosen to be his own possession the people who belong to him, the people who are his inheritance. Sometimes that word possession is translated inheritance there in verse 12. The idea is that by belonging to God, we have value and significance. And of course, he's talking there about the saints, believers. Boy, how blessed and joyful is, is that nation or that, that people group, those who have turned to the Lord by his grace. He's not... He's not a, an absentee landlord. Watch verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. 
the, the phrasing looks down. It's not a negative here. It's not like he looks down in judgment. He's looking down in sovereign activity over all of creation. And he is aware of everyone, everywhere, all the time. He observes everyone. He gazes, verse 14, on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place, thinking about God in his heavenly temple, gazing down. Again, not, the picture here is not of like distance. It's actually of intimacy, that he is intimately acquainted with all that's going on in his creation. But then note the beauty of verse 15. It's not just that he's aware of everyone. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. The idea is not just that God is sovereign, it's that he is sovereign and intimately acquainted with you and with me. He formed our hearts, which means that our personalities and our passions, right, when they're not tainted by sin, they're an expression of his beauty as the creator. We have to recognize sin complicates the situation, so not everything we want is right or good, but God made your heart the way he did for a reason. We praise God not only for his power as creator, but we praise God for his plan. He looks down from heaven, he sees all that's going on, and he is intimately involved with our day-to-day. You know, sometimes we believe the lie that, well, you know, I'm just a, 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 a tiny speck in this universe, and I'm not important, right? And that's only half true. You are a tiny speck in this universe, but God in his and his infinite knowledge knows every single detail about your life and your personhood, everything you're going through, everything you want, everything that's keeping you up at night, every challenge you face. He is intimately involved, and his plans aren't going anywhere. He's sovereign. He frustrates the plans of the nations, but his plans endure from generation to generation, and those plans are not ignorant of your situation. God knows what you're going through. He gets you because he made you. (laughs) He gets you because he made you. Listen, everybody's into God's sovereignty when times are going good. You know what I mean? When you get a raise, this was a God's plan for me to get a raise. Can I get an amen? Right? Like, yeah, nobody's doubting the goodness of God's sovereign plan when they get a raise, right? But what about when you don't get the raise? when chaos seems to be winning a little bit, when the wicked prosper? Will we praise God for his plan even then? Nothing escapes his sight. And yes, there are challenges that we face, but that doesn't change the fact that God's people are his cherished possession. And even if other people don't love and value you, you can be sure that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are uniquely loved and valued in this world. You're part of his inheritance, his special possession. We praise God for his plan. He's not just the creator. He observes creation. He is intimately aware of all of its details. And indeed, he is active in his creation. Things don't always go right, though, do they? Watch verse 16. When they don't go right, where will we turn? Well, He says in verse 16 here, a warning against turning to the wrong place for salvation or rescue. He says, a king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. Just pause there, verses 16 and 17. Listen, horses 
uh, and chariots were the tanks of ancient Near Eastern warfare. Okay, that, they were like it. That was like the pinnacle of, of war technology. And so the idea was a king could easily think that if I have a ton of horses, a ton of chariots, right? If I have that, that military might and power, that I will be victorious. And there's a, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 17, instructions given to Israel futures, Israel's future kings, the instruction is that they're not allowed to develop massive uh, military forces with horses and chariots. Why? Why? Wouldn't you want, God, wouldn't you want your people to have the protection they need? And God says, oh, they have the protection they need. It's just not in horses. And so here, there's a recognition in the psalm that kings or people might think, my protection is in my resources. It's my savings account. It's my performance at work that protects me. It's my educational degree, right? It's, it's my strength. It's my uh, endurance. I'm the reason that I will be safe. But the psalmist says the horse is a false hope. If you're banking on your 401k, be careful. That horse will falter. If you're looking for your job performance to rescue you, well, be careful. There's going to be somebody that comes along who's younger than you and better at your job. If we're looking to our own resources to be the protection for our future, right? The psalmist says, be careful. Be careful about trusting in horses. Because the horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. Well, where do we look then? Verse 18. This powerful God who spoke everything into existence, this God who sees and knows everything, verse 18, but look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love. That's the same word we had earlier, his gracious commitment to keep his covenant promises. The Lord keeps his eye on those who look to him. So what do we do? In the midst of trial and difficulty, in the midst of challenge, we look to the Lord for our rescue. We depend on his faithful love to get us through each day. That doesn't mean we don't seek practical solutions. But as we seek practical solutions, we don't say they are my salvation. We say no. There's only one place I can look to for rescue. And it's not a horse. It's the Lord Almighty who said, let there be. And there was. He's the one who made my heart. And as I look on this earth, I see instances and examples of his Gracious commitment to keep his promises everywhere. And so when push comes to shove and I'm up against it, I'm going to trust in him. And here, what a beautiful picture of verse 18. The Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him. There is a special care that God has for his church. It's distinct from God's general knowledge of everyone's life in general. There's a special care that God has for those who have turned to him. Okay, those who depend on his faithful love, verse 19, those, he, he, he will do this work of not just looking on them or, or keeping his eye on them, but he looks on them to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. And those are used in the psalm as pictures of God's faithfulness in, in his faithfulness to his, his church. You know, the picture here is so beautiful because it turns now to then our response to this great God who's active in creation and intimately cares for us. We, the psalmist says in verse 20, wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our, our hearts rejoice in him, verse 21. 
because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Several themes in the psalm recur here in the last stanza. The, the commitment is that we will depend on the Lord. We will look to the Lord. We will wait on the Lord. Again, acknowledging he is our help and our shield. But then note the joy again in verse 21, like we had at the beginning. For we rejoice, our hearts rejoice in him. Even in the midst of the hardship, that default setting is joy in the Lord. Why? Because we trust in his holy name. You try that sentence any other way, it doesn't work. Our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in money. Our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in approval of my boss. Our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in family lineage. Our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in politicians. That was a joke. That was a joke. That's not even, nobody even says that. Such a joke. Our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. Praise God for his power as creator. Praise God for his plan. Praise God for his provision. He meets the needs of his people. He meets the needs of his people. The God who said, let there be, and there was, he meets our needs. And yes, sometimes he doesn't give us what we want or what we think we need or what others are telling us that we need. But man, our hope is not in them or their counsel. Our hope is in him. We trust in his holy name. And then the psalm concludes in that prayer, verse 22. May your faithful love rest on us. That's the third time we've had this special word that talks about God's gracious commitment to keep his covenant promises. Lord, may your faithful love, may, may that expression of your faithfulness, your gracious keeping of those promises, may it rest on us, Lord. For we put our hope in you and not anywhere else. Whew. Praise God for his power. Praise God for his plan. Praise God for his provision. These aspects of God's character are just the tip of the iceberg as to why we should worship him. We read on in the Psalms, we find other reasons why that we could add to this list. We read on in the scriptures, we see more evidences of God's gracious commitment to fulfill his covenant promises. But what's so remarkable is that if you keep reading in the Bible, we read about the arrival of the son of David, the promised Messiah, the pinnacle of God's gracious commitment to keep his covenant promises. And what do we see in Jesus when we look at him? The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? So when we look to Jesus, we see God himself, and it's through Jesus' work that the universe was created. When we say praise God for his power in creation, we're also saying, in some ways, praise Jesus for his power in creation. It's his power that upholds the universe, right? It's his word that upholds the universe. When we think about God's plan— we think about the, the description of Jesus by the apostles. They describe Jesus as the Lord of lords, the Lord over all lords, the sovereign one. And even as we read in the Gospels, we see Jesus is not subject to the waves of history, but he had written the waves of history. He knew exactly where that water was coming from, where it was going, because he had stacked it in a heap. What did Jesus do? With that plan? Well, he went right to the cross for you and for me. What does he do there? 
he provides fundamentally for our greatest need. We hope in him. We trust in his holy name. Why? Well, again, because of what he's done to provide for us. Because when he dies on the cross, he dies to pay the penalty for our sin, our failure. And when we put our faith in him, the risen Savior, we receive forgiveness from our sins, absolutely. But we also receive a new identity. We're finally in the family. We're finally part of his possession, his inheritance. Uniquely, the recipients of his love and care. And so in some ways, Psalm 33 just sets us up to help us understand the significance of the work of the Messiah later. All the more reason for you and I to praise God. Praise him for his power as creator, yes. Praise him for his sovereign plan, absolutely. But praise him for his provision. And we see that power and that plan and that provision most clearly in Jesus and his love for us. If you're struggling to believe that the earth is full of evidences of God's gracious commitment to keep his promises, you need to look to Jesus. Because it's in Jesus where we find God's grace. Commenting on this psalm, my friend John Calvin had a a remarkable note. He was talking about how Christians can maintain their joy. And he uses an older term, but we'll talk about it. I just want to give it to you here as an encouragement. Calvin, talking about believers, says, Satisfied with God's favor, they, believers, always have, amidst their sorrows and griefs, this comfort, which is sufficient to maintain their cheerfulness. Now listen, I know we don't say sufficient to maintain our cheerfulness, okay? That's not how we talk. But what is Calvin saying there? He's saying when we're satisfied by God's character, that he's the powerful one who created, that he's the one who's the sovereign Lord and his plan is at work, that he's the one who provides for our needs and we don't have to worship these other gods, right? Because of God's power, plan, and provision, we worship him. We're satisfied with his favor. We always have, even when things are hard and difficult, even when that valley is dark and that trial is long, we have this comfort reason to rejoice, which is sufficient to maintain our joy. He said cheerfulness, I'll say joy. It's the goodness of God that maintains our joy, even in the midst of the most significant trials that we are facing. God's goodness anchors us to his joy, which is why even as we are sober and honest about the the trials and difficulties that we're facing, We can never jettison joy. And that's why every week when the saints gather, we always, always, always make you stand up. We tune up the 10-stringed harp, okay? And we, we turn on the computers and the speakers and all the things that have to be on in this day and age for musical accompaniment. And we stand up and we sing. We lift our voices, praising God because of his power as creator, because of his plan as our sovereign, and because of his provision for us. Listen, we were made to live this way. And I don't know what exactly you're going through this morning, but I do know this, that right now, whatever it is, God is still worthy of your worship. And therefore, he's still worthy for us to rejoice in him. So would you please pray with me? And then we're going to respond, and we're going to sing together in response to the psalm. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Psalm 33, a beautiful psalm.
Lord, that reminds us of your goodness, encourages us by consideration of your character as the creator, as the sovereign, Lord, as the provider. And Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning as, as the one who was the agent of creation, the one whose word upholds the universe. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your sovereign plan, and we praise you for your provision for us on the cross. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to rightly value you, to worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit, to rejoice even when we're facing challenges and difficulties. Lord, protect us from idolatry. Help us to see the folly in trusting in money or relationships or achievement or any other human source. Lord, remind us that horses cannot provide the safety that we need, but only you can and you have. Lord, we praise you that as you said, let there be light, you have shined the light of the gospel in our hearts. And we pray that you would help us to respond to you rightly, which means rejoicing in who you are. Lord, give us joy this morning. Even those of us facing very difficult circumstances, Lord, challenges that are painful and hurt, Lord, give us joy. Not plastic, fake happiness, but deep-seated joy anchored to you because of your gracious commitment to fulfill your promises. We ask these things because of your grace. And in the name of Jesus, amen.